There have been countless artistic renditions of Jesus made over the years, over the centuries, from paintings and uh, drawings, sculptures, to more modernly TV shows, movies, which I believe have undoubtedly shaped and influenced the way that we picture scenes from Jesus' life. When we think back to those days and imagine the scenes, impact the way we think about them. Now, outside of Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, there might not be a more famous or well-known painting of Jesus than German painter Heinrich Hoffmann's classic from 1890 called Christ in Gethsemane. There'll be a picture on the screen of that. I'm sure that many of you have seen this painting at one time or another. It may be what actually comes to mind when you think of Gethsemane, when you think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now let's play a game. Let's play, what's wrong with this picture? Okay? I want you to compare this picture to the biblical description of this scene. From what you know, if you know the story, if you don't, you're about to hear it, but if you don't know, if you know the story, what is wrong with this picture? How does this picture differ from the biblical picture? Okay? A few things I notice. One, Jesus is... Quite obviously, very white, European, probably. He's also got a good laundromat. Very nice and clean laundry. Okay? I'm positive, I don't know about you, but I'm positive Jesus didn't have a head that glowed. Okay? There's also no sweat visible, let alone blood. But most striking from this picture Jesus seems quite peaceful and serene, does he not? Unbothered by events around him? I think that some of the appeal of this painting is actually that it seems calming or soothing to us. We don't mind putting a picture like this up on our walls to display because it calms us. But I'll tell you what picture you wouldn't want to put up on your walls, what Jesus actually was like that night. This is not what Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane looked like. Okay, so we have to get this picture out of our minds. There was nothing soothing about Jesus' struggle on the Mount of Olives that night. There was, the disciples were sleeping, but there was nothing calm about what Jesus was going through in these moments. Gethsemane, we call it a garden, it was not a fresh flower garden, It was actually a bloody battleground. And there was nothing peaceful or serene about this scene. It was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. It's not a scene that's very pleasant to dwell on. And we might sometimes gloss it over a bit. However, this is a story that we should never skip over, never gloss over, because it reveals to us some unbelievable truths about Jesus to us, about God, and even about ourselves. I'd like to invite you to get a little bit uncomfortable with me today. As we read this story together, this about the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, and see what it means for us. It may not be a pleasant story, but it is a true story, and it is absolutely vital to our own lives, to our own stories, okay? So I believe that as we read this, there is nothing less 
than the fate of the entire world hanging in the balance in this story on that night. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke 22. Luke 22, and you'll find where we'll be in verse 39. So Luke 22, 39. If you're using one of the pew Bibles that's in front of you, that's on page 882. 882. We are very nearly to the cross now, which we've been building up to for years. And on this night that we're going to read about, Jesus actually got a bitter foretaste of the cross. So let's pray that God will illuminate our hearts as we study this dark night together. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your grace. I pray for your wisdom as we read these words that were penned so long ago, but they still have meaning and power for our lives today. I pray that you would guide our hearts into truth, that your spirit would be working on us, I pray that you would, through these words, show us once again how amazing it is that you love us, that Jesus loves us. We thank you for what you'll do. Pray that your truth goes forth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you have a, a favorite location or two that you like to hang out with your friends at or gather together with your friends? Maybe someone's house in particular, or uh, certain restaurants or public place, maybe the canal these days, nice place to go. Well, Jesus had a favorite hangout as well, where he would go with his closest friends. And this was known as the Mount of Olives, which was a large hill outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus often retreated with his disciples from the busyness of the city. In fact, it seems like this was his campsite, where he slept. The end of last chapter, in chapter 21, told us that every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, on the Mount of Olives. So remember, Jesus was homeless. So he slept in the hills. Went out of the city, slept in the hills. And as Jesus wrapped up the Passover meal that we've studied the last couple weeks, they headed back to camp. Verse 39 says this, follow along with me. It says, And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. It was his custom. He did this every night. And the disciples must have thought as they go back to camp, it's been a long day. I guess we're retiring for the night. We're turning in. But Jesus had very different plans. Look in verse 40. And when he had came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this place that they're talking about was Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which was technically not a garden. Okay? It was actually an olive grove where olives were grown on short, twisted, gnarled trees in the area. And then the olives would be harvested and they'd be turned into oil, so olive oil. And the Hebrew word Gethsemane literally meant olive press. That's what it was, an olive press. But something besides olives would undergo intense pressure on this night. When they reached the olive grove, Jesus instructed his disciples, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew that they were about to face intense temptation on a number of fronts. To run away, to deny, to doubt, to hide, to lose faith. So he told them they needed to pray to avoid these temptations altogether. Now, I don't know if the disciples were confused by this or distracted or just overly tired. But they didn't listen very well, as we'll soon see. It was like they went after Jesus, okay, pray so you don't enter temptation. Okay, good night, Jesus. See you in the morning. Jesus went off by himself. Little ways off, in verse 41 says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. See, disciples weren't the only ones that would soon be facing temptation. Intense temptation. Jesus himself was about to undergo a crucible of temptation at unheard of levels. So Jesus... See, he left his disciples, was really trudging off to battle. And we're going to see how he'd wage his war is actually from his knees. We're going to see several powerful truths from the prayer he prayed. Read with me once more in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Stop there for now. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This already reveals something important to us, and that is this. First of all, Jesus' prayer revealed his temptation to give up. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane revealed his human desire, his temptation to give up. And this was not a half-hearted desire either. Jesus was impassioned here. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when he did this, he he went off by himself and fell to the ground. He collapsed and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, don't picture what we saw before. Don't picture serene paintings of Jesus saying these words. Picture a heartbroken man, a heavily distressed man praying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this temptation, remove this cup from me. Now this is startling to us, that Jesus would pray this, because up till now in Luke, Jesus has seemed in control of things. He seemed unflappable. Nothing could phase him. Nothing could shake him up. Not even the devil's temptations, not even plots to murder him. Nothing could faze him, but here Jesus collapses and he begs his heavenly Father to let him quit. This is also startling because the entire Gospel of Luke has led up to this point. Jesus' entire life has led up to these next 24 hours. This is why he had come to earth. He was constantly pointing people ahead to these days, to the cross, to his death, to his resurrection. He had steeled his gaze. He had resolutely determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, he had arrived in Jerusalem and his resolve seemed to be shaking a bit. 
I don't know if you've ever reached what we call a breaking point in something. Whether in school or work, maybe a relationship, maybe in some intense suffering that you went through, where you felt that you were in control up to a certain point for so long, but eventually maybe a straw broke the camel's back and you lost it. Threw in the towel. Gave up. Doesn't it seem like this is what Jesus is experiencing? A breaking point of sorts? Even though his whole life had led up to this moment, Jesus didn't want to follow through. And why shouldn't he have felt this way? Why shouldn't he? Staring unimaginable abandonment, humiliation, mockery, and torture in the face. Facing an unfathomably painful death, which was totally undeserved. Philip Ryken says this was instinctual. Okay, As a human being, Jesus had the same instinct to preserve his life that anyone has. No one loved life more than he did. How could it be his will, therefore, to suffer the torture of his body and the curse of death? Jesus was averse to death. Everything in his humanity recoiled against it. What we see here is Jesus' human nature revealing its weakness. Not sin, weakness. It's a difference. Giving up would have been wrong for him, but being tempted to was not at all. We can see Jesus' human nature wrestling with his divine nature here. We believe that Jesus was both human and divine, both man and God, 100% man, 100% God. And while these two natures which resided inside Jesus were indivisible, this is a rare moment when we can see them pulling in opposite directions, it seems. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are. In every respect. As a human, Jesus was susceptible to temptation. He experienced its full power just like us. And in this case, probably far worse than we've ever experienced. I'm confident that if we were in his shoes in this moment, all of us would have given up. All of us would have given up. None of us would have had the intestinal fortitude to persevere under these circumstances. Jesus felt a strong pull, a temptation to give up. But that's only half the story. Because Jesus didn't give up. And that's because above any human desire for relief was a stronger desire to please his Father. Look at this full prayer in verse 42. So, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Thy will be done. Here's what we see here. Jesus' prayer revealed his total surrender to his Father's will, to the Father's will. Jesus' prayer revealed his total surrender to the Father's will. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but yours be done. So Jesus was basically admitting his weakness, but affirming his resolve. Like, Lord, this is what I want right now. But if this is what you want, so be it. Despite his internal struggle at the moment, he submitted himself to his Father's will again. Now, God's will, the will he's talking about here, refers to God's sovereign purpose and desires and plan for the, really the whole universe. And God's sovereign will will absolutely take place no matter what, guaranteed. Okay? Because God is all wise. He knows what is best at all times for all people. And God is all powerful, omnipotent. Nothing can thwart or hinder his plans. So Jesus, in his humanity, asked, isn't there any other way that this can all take place? Isn't there any other way? And God answered, no. Sadly, it does need to happen this way. At first, it might sound to us like Jesus was making a, a bad or an inappropriate prayer request. <laughs> to be relieved from his heavenly mission to die for sins. But it wasn't a bad prayer request because he set a major condition on it. If you are willing, if you are willing, only grant my request if it's according to your will. It wasn't. So it didn't happen. Just like Jesus asked. So if you think about it that way, Jesus' prayer was answered. He didn't get what he wanted, but God's will was done. Let me ask you, ask us, when you pray, do you pray according to God's will? Do you try to pray according to God's will? Or do you only express your desires and your wants, and your will as you pray. I know the tendency all too well. The tendency to, to treat God like he's a genie in a bottle. That we can summon and he grants us our every wish. So easy for our prayers to become self-focused. We might as well be praying to ourselves. Because if our prayers are not according to God's will, they will not be answered. When we pray, we need to admit we are not in control, but that God is. When we pray, we can, and we can acknowledge our wants and our desires, but we must also acknowledge that God could have a better plan. We, our prayers should be expressions of our total surrender to God's will. We need to trust God that he knows what he's doing. So next time we're faced with a distressing or an upsetting or a painful situation, we must pray. We must pray. Pray for strength. 
Pray for provision. Pray for protection. Pray for peace. Pray for healing. Pray for whatever your heart most deeply needs or desires in that moment. But pray above all your desires that your will would align with God's will. Lord, this is what I want. But if this is what you want, if you want something else, then so be it. I know that your will is higher than me, mine. I know that your plans are greater than mine. Your timing is better than mine. Your wisdom, your knowledge are higher than mine. Therefore, not my will, but your will be done. I promise you that prayer would be answered. Maybe not in the way that you want or expect, but God will answer our prayers in a way that will bring about his will to his glory. When we hear Jesus saying, verse 41, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. We might wonder, well, could God have done this? Could God have removed this cup from Jesus? Couldn't he have saved Jesus from the cross? The short answer is yes. The long answer is no. God could do anything. He could have saved Jesus from this hour. No problem. If he wanted to, he could have squashed Satan like a bug in that moment. He could have easily thwarted Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders that were on their way. Easily. Yes, he could have removed the cup from Jesus. But it would have been at the cost of our salvation. And that was a cost that God wasn't willing to pay. God could have rightfully abandoned his rescue mission right then. Heaven knows that's what we deserve. But if God wanted to save people, if he truly and deeply cared about us, if God truly wanted to blot out sin, to conquer death, to rescue from hell, then this was the only way Jesus had to go to the cross. So do you see what I meant when I said that the fate of the world hung in the balance on this night? The stakes were huge. God could have saved Jesus to everyone else's doom. Therefore, in that moment, God was choosing to love us with an unexplainable love. Love that compelled Jesus to undergo agony that we can't imagine. And that's the next thing here. Jesus' prayer revealed the intense agony he lovingly experienced. Jesus' prayer revealed the intense agony he lovingly experienced on our behalf. The mental anguish he was going through was so brutal that God sent an angel to help. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So this heavenly warrior shows up to build up Jesus' strength for the task at hand. 
supernaturally instilling him with spiritual power, with physical vigor. I can imagine, as the scene unfolded in heaven, the father weeping along with his son, with Jesus, and then turning to one of his best angels, Go! Minister to my son! He needs strength right now. However, while the angel could strengthen Jesus, he couldn't prevent his agony. If you haven't felt the intensity of what Jesus was going through yet, get ready to. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was intense, severe. It really was stunning for Jesus to be going through this. Other accounts say that he was distressed, troubled, sorrowful, grieved, and agitated. The prayer he prayed in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. It's possibly the most intense prayer ever recorded. And yet in verse 44, he says, he prayed even more earnestly. And this emotional and mental agony soon became physically excruciating. It says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this was not like blood. This actually was blood. Because if these, were, if these drops of blood were a metaphor, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Why even bring it up? Remember, Luke was a doctor. Okay, he would have described physical conditions precisely. And it turns out, Jesus literally sweated blood, which turns out is a proven scientific condition. Called hematohydrosis. And at the extremities of human anguish or distress, blood vessels around sweat glands constrict and can rupture. And the blood can get into the sweat glands and then come out mixed with sweat. So the thought of going through what he was about to go through filled Jesus with so much dread that he bled uncontrollably and yet uncoerced. This is a picture of deepest human turmoil. Gethsemane was far more than a stressful or strenuous experience. It was a bitter, bloody battle within Jesus' soul. And I find it striking that the first bloodstains on Jesus' clothes were of his own doing. Now, there's a a big question here that might be bothering some of you. That is that Jesus' agony before his death seems very unique in most of history. There have been many great men and women, some believers, some not, who have stared death in the face and faced it boldly and stoically. Courageously, Many Christian martyrs have faced brutal suffering and death with great courage. 
and without near the inner turmoil that Jesus had here. I mean, it's one thing to be afraid of death, but this takes it to a whole other level. It seems extreme, does it not? So why did Jesus feel such agonizing distress in Gethsemane? Where was his courage? Tim Keller says this. Why is it that many of Jesus' followers have died better than Jesus? Of course, he must have been facing something that none of the other martyrs were facing. Something happened in the garden. Jesus saw, felt, sensed something, and it shocked the unshockable Son of God. He was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through on the cross. Didn't he know he was going to die? Yes. But we're not talking about information here. Of course he knew that. He had told the disciples so repeatedly. But now he is beginning to taste what he will experience on the cross. And it goes far beyond physical torture and death. The answer to this question all comes down to a hint we saw in the first words of Jesus' prayer here. In verse 42, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup. A cup was a very familiar metaphor in the Bible. Very familiar picture. It was used to describe someone's lot in life. Whatever God had providentially given them. Sometimes it was positive, like in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. But most of the time in Scripture, a cup referred to the judgment and wrath of God, which God gave to people who were to be judged. They were forced to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Like like a conquered king would be forced to drink a cup of poison. For example, in Jeremiah 25, 15, God told Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Isaiah 51, 17, God said, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You, have, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now, some of you may be uncomfortable with this idea of, of God having wrath. But I'll just say this. You cannot have a God of love without him having wrath as well. Can't happen. Because he must be righteously angry against the things that hurt those he loves. I don't want a God. I don't want a God who is not justly furious at sin and death and Satan. I don't want a God like that. These are things that are seeking to destroy us. We need him to save us from them. Jonathan Dodson says, God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer eating the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. 
That's God's wrath. Because of the sickening ways that we've all sinned, we all deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. We have all pridefully revolted against God. We have trampled His glory. We have fought against Him at every turn. But the reality of God's wrath is what makes grace and mercy all the more beautiful. C.J. Mahaney says that only those who are aware of God's wrath are amazed at His grace. That is so true. Only those who are aware of God's wrath are amazed at God's grace. And this is why what Jesus went through in Gethsemane should absolutely astound us. Jesus wasn't only staring at torture and death. He was staring at the cup of God's wrath. He was getting a a glimpse, as Keller said, a whiff of what he'd go through the next day. A glimpse of total alienation and rejection from his own father who loved him. A glimpse of bearing the full brunt of God's anger against sin, his holy fire. A glimpse of becoming sin. Bearing the guilt of the sins of billions of people. The glimpse of condemnation. Of damnation. Of hell. We can't imagine. Not not even close. Puritan Richard Baxter said, Christ's agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. And Donald McLeod says, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know, he took damnation lovingly. The only darker verses in Scripture are the ones that come in the next chapter when all this took place. But here in the garden, this was the light of the world plunged into dark, dark despair. And yet, the good news that shines in the midst of this utter darkness is this, that Jesus chose to face the wrath of God so that we never have to. Don't you see? Jesus was going through this agony, this anguish for you, for me. Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, and only because of that we can be forgiven. 
Because Jesus died and rose again from the grave, only because of that we can find life in our deaths. We can find light in our darkness. Yes, Jesus may have desired to quit, but he knew he couldn't. God loved us too much to do so. Therefore, Jesus not only took the cup of God's wrath, but he drained it to the dregs. Have you seen Jesus' incredible love for you yet? If so, has it changed your life yet? Have your sins been forgiven in Christ? Has the wrath that you deserve been borne by Him? If not, I plead with you to let go of your sins today. Let go of the sins that place Jesus on the cross and run to Him for forgiveness. Let Him wash you clean. Let Him purify you. Let Him make you holy. Let Him give you joy today. He went through hell so you never have to. We owe him our lives, our everything. Please come see me after the service if you desire to do this today. I know that it is God's will for you to be saved and to follow him. And if you don't, And all I can say is to take heed of Jesus' warning from John 3.36. He said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't have to be that way. Because it had to be that way for Jesus. Here at Calvary, we sing a a number of modern hymns written by Keith and Kristen Getty. They wrote a powerful hymn about Gethsemane. The final verse asked this question. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? And the answer, his love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. No sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry, all mingled in this poisoned cup. And yet, he drank it all. The Savior drank it all. Don't let yourself be worried today about Jesus' resolve to die for us. Don't let yourself doubt his love for you. Even as he wrestled with the choice he was making. Because at the end of the prayer, he got up. He stood up. At the end of the next day, he did die. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, when he rose from prayer, his rising from prayer was yet another testament to his love. He rose freshly resolved and dedicated to the task at hand, strengthened by God. He wished there was another way, but there wasn't. So he rose, and he went to meet his fate. But in the way that Jesus' prayer really conquered his intense temptation, we see one last truth for us today. 
And that is that Jesus' prayer exemplified how prayer combats temptation. Jesus' prayer exemplified how prayer can strongly combat temptation. Not only do we see this from the way Jesus rose from prayer, after with his temptation to quit gone, but we also see it in the stark contrast between Jesus and his disciples. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples to pray earlier. Why? Back in verse 40, to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, let's see what actually happened while Jesus was off praying. Verse 45, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus actually came back to his disciples three different times. And every single time he found them sleeping and had to shake them awake. Come on! Can't you even stay awake and pray with me for an hour? You notice that verse 45 said the disciples were sleeping for sorrow. For sorrow. The Passover dinner that they had just celebrated, had not ended the way you have to imagine the disciples expected it to end. Instead of a joyful celebration of God's deliverance, Jesus had begun talking about blood and death and being labeled a criminal. He seemed to be warning them that suffering would be coming for them as well. And in the middle of this, they had lost it. They had just started bickering and accusing each other of being false. And then one of their own, Judas, actually got up, walked out, and abandoned them. The dinner of deliverance had turned into a disaster, at least in their minds, leaving a bitter taste in their mouths. The emotional strain had begun to wear on them, too. And they were beat. You all know what it's like to be exhausted just because of being sad or torn up. So they get back to camp, and they all quickly fell fast asleep, sleeping for sorrow. And Jesus asked, why are you sleeping? The answer had to be easy. They are exhausted. But exhaustion doesn't excuse their plain disobedience to Jesus' command to pray. But if you want an explanation for all that took place in the next little while, look no further. Why did Peter deny Jesus? Why did all the rest run away? Because they didn't pray. I can't claim this with absolute certainty, but I think it's a pretty easy connection. Jesus said, pray so that you don't fall into temptation. They didn't pray, and they all fell into temptation. So on the one hand, we've got the the Savior battling his own temptation with desperate prayer and overcoming it. And on the other hand, we've got the disciples failing. Failing their temptation because they didn't pray. Do you think there's a message there for us? Take Jesus' example. I am convinced that the absolute best weapon we have to fight temptation with is prayer. 
we may not fully understand prayer, we may struggle with prayer, but communicating and communing with God in prayer does give us strength. And that's because when we pray, when we truly pray, we're not relying on our own strength. We're relying on His. Sometimes we can feel powerless against sin's pull, can't we? We can feel like our tempers are totally out of control. Like our tongues can't be tamed. We can feel like clicking that link online and we know we shouldn't, but we still do it anyway. We can feel like we had to eat that extra plate. Like we had to, like we couldn't not take that second glance. Like we couldn't resist the urge to gossip or slander about someone else. Temptation is strong. But have you ever noticed how it's right in those moments when we least want to pray? You ever notice that? Your flesh doesn't want you to unleash the most powerful weapon God gives you. Of himself. It can feel impossible to resist temptation sometimes. And I believe that's because on our own, it is impossible to do so. It is impossible. But with God's strength, with God's spirit inside of you, with prayer, you can resist. And you can find victory. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us in every temptation, God provides a way of escape. There's always a way of escape, and we've got to flee to God to find it. Sometimes, you may not be able to bring yourself to pray. So what do you do? Call someone else right then. Have them pray for you. I don't care if it's 2 a.m. in the morning. Call them. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is, has great power as it is working. And then if we do end up failing, we do end up falling short. That's when we run back to Gethsemane. And we see Jesus Tasting the cup of God's wrath, even as his disciples slept. Jesus was passing his test, even as his followers flunked theirs. Yes, he he set us an example, but really it was far more than just that. Luke Stamp says this, Jesus is more than a good example. He is also our representative. In Gethsemane, the disciples sleep while Jesus is praying their prayer. He alone watches and prays. He alone is wholly committed to the petition, Thy will be done. He alone is the obedient Son of the Father. Thus, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is a dramatic enactment of his representative work. Adam disobeyed in the garden of paradise. The last Adam obeyed in a garden of agony. Meanwhile, his disciples were sleeping 
in lieu of their eventual abandonment of Jesus. Just another reminder of the gospel. Jesus' obedience to the Father is the only hope for weak, disobedient, and treacherous people like us. The only hope. Hold on to that hope. It is a sure and certain hope because Jesus prayed and he prevailed. He rose up with fresh resolve. He finished his trek to the cross and he drank his fill of the cup and he did all of it for it was God's will to love us. So he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your will would be done in us. We are so weak and disobedient and treacherous. And you are so strong and obedient and holy. We need you with every fiber of our being. Pray if anyone here is wrestling with you today, wrestling whether or not to flee their sins and run to you, that they would do so this morning. I pray for all of us that we would be awakened afresh with a new wonder and amazement for what you've done for us. Awaken our hearts to see you, to tell of you, sing of you, for you are worthy. Please save us, God, and we pray your will would be done in our lives today. In Jesus' name.